Anyway, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I have no idea if we'll make this goal, but the idea is to get through chapter 2, and we're starting at uh, chapter 1, verse 4. So we've had the introduction, and then Paul gives a prayer of thanksgiving for the Corinthians in 4 through 9, verses 4 through 9, which is a common pattern for Paul to pray for the church that he's writing to. Except Galatians. If you've ever read Galatians, he's really pretty upset with them. And so he just starts right in on them, telling them this, that, and the other thing, and never really prays for them. Galatians was also his first letter that he ever, that we know of, that he wrote at church. And so he wasn't as polished as he was uh, when he got a little bit older and more mature. But at any rate, um, let's read 4 through 9 and get started with that. And then we'll get into. Um, the, the body of this letter and really the first four chapters are dealing with one issue but he comes at it in several different ways so he says starting in verse 4 I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus verse 5 that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, It seems to me that even though Paul is praying, he's already teaching or preaching a little bit. Have you ever been to a church? I'm sure we've done this too at Arcadia before you ever been to a church where the pastor prays but you really get the feeling that he's not praying he's preaching at you while he's praying you know Uh, there's a little bit of that I think going on here with Paul he's tipping his hand that the Corinthians are really into self-reliance and arrogance and egoism and not relying on the sufficiency of Christ and so he's trying to let them know that Christ is sufficient for everything that they need That has been confirmed in their lives already. He says that in the prayers. If you would just look at the evidence, you would see that Christ is sufficient for everything that's important. And he says in speech and knowledge, which are two really important things in verse five, uh, he seems to try. It seems as though he's trying to let them know you got to quit relying on yourself because then he just starts talking about for chapter after chapter after chapter in first Corinthians. He's really going to rail on them about how. You're really into yourself, and it's, and it's um, becoming a problem. You think you're wise, you're not leaning into the wisdom of God, and that's really a problem. So we could call this prayer Paul's thanksgiving for the total sufficiency of Christ. And he says, the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that's a d- direct reference to salvation. So he's saying that the people in Corinth are saved, Um, But then he's going to use this letter to talk a lot about what it means to actually walk in saving grace, which the Corinthians are not doing a very good job of. And so he's going to have a lot of correction for them in this letter. And that's what um, verse 5 gets at, the fact that the saving grace is also transforming grace and their lives and our lives should reflect that reality. He says, it's enough for your speech and your knowledge. If you want to know things, you need to know Christ. Sub- know his will, submit to his will, pursue after him. Uh, if, if you want, uh, I think it's interesting, Matthew, or, um, Jesus in Matthew 10, and he also does this in the later chapters of Luke, 
He tells his disciples, do not be concerned about what you're going to say. God is going to give you the words. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be prepared. So let's not use this whole, oh, this, I'm just guided by the Holy Spirit. I never have to be disciplined or prepared. That's, that's, that's a mistake. But we should rely on the fact that the Holy Spirit is going to give us the words to say. And we have examples of that in Scripture. First of all, Jesus told his disciples that. And second of all, in Acts chapter 4, when you see Peter and John, who are uneducated common men, the Greek word is idiotos, which we get the word idiot from, um, they go before the Sanhedrin and they pretty much put the Sanhedrin in their place and they're all educated people. God was giving them the words uh, to say. So verse 5 gets at this idea that saving grace is also a transforming grace and it is the power to be able to live under the will of Christ. But we need to remember that it's not ever going to be perfectly. We're not going to perfect. We're still encased in this flesh that desires sin. But we are getting better and we are getting more knowledgeable about God. This is one of the reasons why we do Bible study. This is one of the reasons we do men's thing Monday morning and women's on Thursday and one of the reasons why we teach the Bible and proclaim the gospel on Sunday morning is because we need to get better at that. Um, and there is a measure of transformation that uh, is generally noticeable if people know you over a long period of time. And I know for us, when we evaluate ourselves, there are times when we think, I'm not getting anywhere, I can't seem to purge this sinful nature that I have. And it's true, you're never going to be able to purge it all the way. But if you ask people who have known you best over the longest period of time, I'm guessing they're going to say, oh yeah, you've, you are being sanctified. Jackie will tell you that I'm a completely different person, obviously physically, but more spiritually than, than I was 35 years ago when we first uh, met. There's been transformation. There's been a metamorphosis. So and then, and then verses 6 through 8, I think, are really interesting. I want to reread them. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, verse 6 says, is essentially Paul saying, you're obviously Christians. And I've heard reports on you that, that there are things that you are doing that demonstrate your love for Jesus. Can you feel a but coming, though? <laughs> there is a but coming, though. In verses 7 and 8, he says, but you also still have some issues. Now, everyone does, but you have some issues, and you need to uh, lean into Christ and into the spiritual gifts that you've been given in order to continue in the process of transformation and sanctification. One of the biggest challenges the church in Corinth had was self-reliance. And out of self-reliance, of course, comes pride. And this is just part of living in a culture like Corinth. Corinth was all about um, self-esteem, self-actualization, self-realization. All of those things that we think are new to the 20th and 21st century. Corinth was all about that in the first century. And it's part of fallen human nature. Paul is saying the only reason that you have been kept... The only reason that you are guiltless in spite of your issues is because of the grace and unconditional love of God through Jesus Christ. Now that's a great thing and that is a gift that we all have. The unconditional love and grace of Jesus, no matter how often we stumble and fall, God's looking at us going, just get back up and keep going. Don't worry about it. I've got that covered. 
It's what, it's what Paul says in Philippians 3, forgetting what lies behind, I press on. Okay, that's really important. Okay. Uh, and so stop thinking uh, so much of yourselves without the will and wisdom of God and understand who you are in him because you, you, you really got nothing apart from him. And then he reminds him in verse 9 who it is that is truly faithful and where life and power come from. Paul is always pointing his audience back to Jesus. It's always being pointed back to Jesus. This isn't just a Corinthian thing that Paul is doing here, but as we'll see, the church in Corinth does have some unique issues and challenges that we, we're glad we have these letters to the church at Corinth because he deals in depth with many of these issues that he doesn't really talk about in any of the other letters, which are really helpful. And then in verses 10 through 17, we start to get right at it. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. Another word for divisions. Anybody? Quarrels. Dissension. Dissension. Factions. Factions. Yes, all of those. Okay. So you can read all of that in there. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. This, gosh, this sounds so much like Philippians 1 and 2. Okay. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you uh, says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And then he starts in his argument against that. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that uh, no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Not with words of eloquent, eloquent wisdom, lest the Christ of cross, cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Um, there are people that can really make their rhetoric dazzle and dance. And, and, and that's great, and God can use that gift, but if it never points at the cross of Christ, then it robs the cross of its power. And that's what Paul is saying here, and that's, that's really important. It's one of the things that um, I think I love most about Tom Schrader, our founding pastor, was that uh, the guy was a rhetorical genius. He's the greatest Bible teacher I ever listened to, and I know there's other great ones out there, but he was the best I ever listened to, and yet you never came away thinking that it was about him. It was always about Christ. Always about Christ. Okay? So one of the things that's happening here, it's pretty interesting. In their Greco-Roman culture, in, in the unchurched world, and especially in Corinth, a place like Corinth, when you found a teacher, uh, usually a worldly teacher, and there were lots of them, especially in a place like Corinth or Athens, uh, you found a teacher that you liked and you followed. You gave your exclusive loyalty to that teacher. It's not just that you followed them, but you would become their champion, their advocate, their billboard, whatever you want to uh, say about that. And then what you would also do is you would begin to argue with other followers of other teachers about the merits and superiority of your teacher. Okay? So in Corinth, they carried these attitudes into the church. And so Paul says, first of all, this is idolatry. 
You have made false gods out of um, Apollos and myself and Cephas. You've made false gods out of people. I'm so glad that in the 21st century in the church, we're so enlightened that we never make false gods out of people anymore. That's a joke. That's sarcasm. That's cynicism. Okay. What that does, though, is when we start making false gods out of people, when we start elevating people instead of Christ, it causes divisions in the church. And divisions, factions, quarreling, dissension, whatever you want to call it, it's not acceptable. It's not. Now, I mentioned this in a, in a sermon recently. I want to make sure I get this in here. Our unity is not a call to uniformity. We can have differences of opinions and politics and things like that, but we are united in Christ. That is the thing that unites us, and that supersedes all of those other divisions. Okay, um, And I would say in the church today, we have merely uh, substituted political ideologies for Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. That's our problem in the church today. I've been on that for a couple of years, that the biggest idol in the American church today is now politics and politicians and political platforms. We, we really believe those things are going to save us more than Christ has saved us. And it's just really sad. Okay? I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying it's not important. Okay? What I am saying is that if you think it's the ultimate thing and it's, and it's your ticket to uh, fulfillment and redemption, uh, you're going to be really disappointed if you aren't already. <laughs> okay? So we have this problem. And even, the people, in the, even, even people in the church who ought to know better, um, uh, we not only are idol worshipers, but we're also idol makers. We're really good at making things idols as well. We're so good at making and elevating false gods. And I think Paul is a bit funny here as well. He says, why are you divided and arguing about things that I never proclaimed or taught? He's reminding them, this isn't even an issue that I ever brought up. And here you are fighting about it. It's not even a secondary issue. It's, not e- it's, it's, it's a non-issue. Okay? And then he says, I preach Christ and Christ crucified. So follow Christ. And then he ends, I already mentioned this, he ends 17, verse 17, with a profound statement. The cross of Christ is big enough, sufficient enough, and powerful enough that no one needs to embellish the message of the cross. But if you do embellish, the opposite of what you're trying to accomplish with your embellishments will happen. The cross will lose its power. And then he moves into what I think is one of the most important passages in Scripture, I want to read it all the way through. We're going to read 118 through the end of 2, and then we'll come back and just unpack it for the last 30 minutes that we have here. And remember, just please remember, um, when Paul wrote these letters, there were no um, verse or paragraph or chapter divisions in these letters. And so as you see these verse, paragraph, and chapter divisions... Uh, you have to remind yourself every time you see these things that that doesn't necessarily mean that Paul is on to something new. This, these first four chapters are all about the very same issue, and that's this issue of self-reliance, which has created factions and the elevation of people. And he's talking, everything he talks about in these first four chapters is pointing back to that, and he will continue, you'll see him pointing back to those things. So he says in verse 18, um, don't let the, the end of verse 17, don't let the cross of Christ be emptied of its power for the word of the cross. See how it just flows? The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, 
I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and its folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I... By the way, chapter 2, but he's just continuing this thought, okay? And I, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, with um, spectacular rhetoric, okay? For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do, not, uh, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of, for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person? Notice that Spirit there is a lowercase s, okay? Uh, For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the capital S, Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit, little s of this world, but the spirit, big S, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught in the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Again, there's some Philippians overlap there. Philippians 2.5, have in you the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. So let's go back and look at this. He's, he's talking about the wisdom of the world is compared to the wisdom of God. The foolishness of the world is compared to the foolishness of God because the Corinthians are so worldly and they continue to buy into the worldly paradigms of how to exercise 
um, wisdom and intelligence and, and live their lives and they think that transformation is from within and not from Christ, all of those things. So, so he says, the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing. So those who do not know Jesus and you tell them about the cross of Christ and the resurrection, they think it's foolishness. You've had those conversations. Well, I've had those conversations anyway. They think it's foolishness because they're perishing. That's what Paul says. I know that sounds arrogant. I know that sounds exclusive. I know that sounds harsh, but it's also true. It's just true. If you're not spiritually discerned, if you don't have what uh, Tom used to say, um, the, uh, uh, the code interpreter, okay, you're, you're going to be somebody who is looking at us thinking we're crazy. And that's, and by the way, that was me before I came to Christ. Jackie and I were friends for two years before um, we started dating. I, most of you know the story because she was with some other um, loser. And so, um, anyway, at, 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 but, I, but she was a Christian and I was not. And we were friends and we used to have these talks and I would just unload on her. You're a fool. You're an idiot. Why would you give money to a church? This is stupid. You can't tell me you actually believe in all that hocus-pocus nonsense. And then finally God got a hold of me. It wasn't me. I said this Sunday. It wasn't because I was smart enough. I wasn't because um, uh, I was given special instruction by somebody who had great words of, of rhetoric. It was because God worked in my life somehow through uh, Jackie. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written... And then Paul quotes God saying, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. Those who think they're wise without God, they're going to be destroyed. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Okay? And then he says, and he's kind of, he's kind of mocking here. So where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? He's saying, go ahead, let them stand up to God and see how well they fare. So he's calling them out right now. And then he says, for, in the wisdom, for, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Uh, how can you believe that stuff? It's foolishness, it's folly. Yet we proclaim it, we preach it, and people come. Because people want to hear a message of hope, a message of good news. Maybe they've tried every other single thing the world has to offer and none of that has worked. And they finally come to the church and they hear that it isn't up to them. And it isn't up to some worldly philosophy. It isn't up to some self-motivation uh, uh, or improvement technique. It's all done for you in Christ. And some people look at that and go, that's a pretty good deal. Because the Spirit's moving in them and starting to open their eyes and open their ears. And then he says, for Jews demand sign and Greeks seek wisdom. That's just a cultural comment on the truth that um, Jews didn't believe anything unless it was accompanied with a miracle. And, and the Greeks were more sophisticated than that. They just believed in good philosophical rhetoric and arguments. And, and if you can't do those things, either of those things, you're lost. But then he says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So it's a stumbling block to Jews that Jesus, the person who could do signs and miracles, ended up on the cross and didn't come down. That's a stumbling block to them. But then Paul, of course, eventually will say, but what about the resurrection? He did come down off the cross, just not the way you thought he should. Okay, 
but the Jews, it's still a stumbling block for them. And then, of course, the Greeks are sitting there going, how could a guy who's that smart, if he's all that smart, if he's all that, um, that he's cracked up to be philosophically and his teachings are so great, how did he end up on the cross? So that's why uh, this is foolishness to the Gentiles. But then he says, but to, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, doesn't matter because God works in both of them. Christ is the power of God and it's the wisdom of God. And then he says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So now Paul really puts it into perspective. He, he's, here's, here's what he's saying. He's saying even the Arizona Coyotes could beat the best college hockey team. <laughs> do, you, do you get the analogy there? That's, that's what he's saying, okay? As disappointed as we all, well, as disappointed as I might be in the Arizona Coyotes, they could still beat the very best college team. That's, that's, what it, that, that's the comparison that Paul is making here. And then, and then this part is just fantastic. I love this part. For consider your calling. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Isn't it interesting that, that, that Jesus didn't go after, he didn't go after the uh, professional religious people. He could have gone after them and he could have built this incredible organization, right? Instead, he went... He goes after Peter. I'm telling you, I suppose, you know, the, the whole uh, male Hebrew school for kids in the first century, all the little Hebrew boys, or Jewish boys would go to Hebrew school and there was a cutoff at six, a cutoff at nine, a cutoff at 13. And then if you made it to like 16 or 17, you would start interviewing for grad school. And that's what Paul did. And he got into the yoke of Gamaliel and all that, you know. And, and my sub, I don't have any evidence for it, but I'm sure Peter got cut at six years old. They looked at, they, when he was four, they were going, he's not going to make it, okay? And that's where Jesus goes. He goes to Peter. And Peter, I, I know that he's kind of the, this kind of bumbling, you know, problematic guy in the Gospels, but read about him in Acts. He is the rock of the church in Acts. He's the guy that gets the whole thing started. I mean, he's just filled with the Holy Spirit and he's standing up to people and all this. It's just fantastic. So, you know, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. You didn't have any power. You didn't have any status. You didn't have any titles or position. Not many of you were of noble birth. I didn't, I didn't go and get somebody who had the right lineage or the right legacy. None of that stuff, okay? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Uh, how do I say this without sounding horrible? But it's just true. Any of, you, any of you ever know Larry Wright? Any of you ever know him, see him speak, see him teach? Okay, so Larry was Tom's mentor. Larry was the guy that Tom went to hear, okay, when he became a Christian. So it, maybe you've heard this story before, but Tom was at Colwell Banker and, and he was a mess by his own admission. Uh, just his, his marriage was a complete mess. He was drinking too much and all this. And there were a group of guys in Colwell Banker that used to go to this Bible study that Larry Wright led on Thursdays at Phoenix Country Club. And one day Tom went over to one of them and said, hey, uh, that study you have, you, Nobody had ever invited Tom to this Bible study. So he went and said to one of them, you know, that study you have, um, 
would I be able to come to that? And the guy looks at him and said, yeah, they'll let anybody in. <laughs> so Tom was like, okay, that was kind of insulting, but at least the bar's low enough that I can get in, okay? You know. And he goes and he hears Larry teach, and he goes and sits in his car in the parking lot, and he just, he just starts crying for an hour. And so this is back, any, anybody remember phone books? I know some of you probably, okay, anyway. So this is 1980. Tom goes to look for Larry Wright in the Phoenix phone book. <laughs> so, you know, there's like half a page of Larry Wright's, you know. So he just starts calling him, and on the second one, the same guy picked up. Hello. That's the way Larry used to answer the phone. And um, he said, are you the guy that teaches the Bible? And he says, yeah. He says, i got to meet with you. And so they met. Um, you all know where Joyride is on Central Avenue, the Joyride restaurant? Did you know that used to be a Humpty Dumpty? Anybody? You know what a Humpty Dumpty is? Okay, Humpty Dumpty is um, where people go who can't afford Denny's, okay? So <laughs> that's, it's, it's, it's uh, low-end Denny's, okay? So Larry said, meet me at the Humpty Dumpty on Central. <laughs> they went in there, and uh, anyway, one thing led to another, and, and, and Tom gives his, gives his life to Christ through the ministry of Larry Wright. So the reason I ask you if you've ever seen Larry Wright, Larry Wright his entire body from the time he was 35 or so was racked with uh, arthritis. He could barely walk. His hands were like this, okay? Um, he was hunched over like this. He was maybe five, 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 six. And, and Tom said that when Larry, you know, walked up to tea and he would carry his Bible like here and then he would just throw it on the music stand like that. And, and he would lick his knuckle in order to turn pages in the Bible, and he would teach, and Tom's sitting there going, this is the teacher? I mean, look at this guy. You understand what I'm getting at, right? You know, people used to say that about Tom, too. This is the guy, you know? You hear about this great teacher, Tom Schrader, and, and you expect this six-foot-three-inch, suave, debonair guy would come out. I mean... He preached once in Second Baptist Church in Houston, um, uh, and did did you see ever see the video? No, I didn't see the video. Did you hear the story? Okay, so he's thirty thousand people go to this church. Okay, and he got asked to preach there, and they said, um, first of all, he was shocked when he found out he had to wear a suit to preach in a church. <laughs> he said, I, I I didn't understand that. Anyway, he walks out there in this suit that doesn't fit him. <laughs> And, um, and uh, his opening line was, uh, was something like this. Um, you know, in high school, I tried out for the basketball team, but they already had a ball. <laughs> so Tom was even aware of his own physical limitations. You know what I mean? And yet, look at the legacy of these two guys. You ask any old-time Christian person in Phoenix, you ask them about Larry Wright, and they'll light up. They will absolutely light up about Larry. He was a great Bible teacher. And, you know, Tom's legacy is, is still going, you know. It's just incredible. But they were not, you would look at them from worldly standards, both of those guys, and you'd go, how? Well, that's the power of God. That's the Holy Spirit. That's, that's somebody who doesn't rob the cross of its power. And Paul was the same way, the Apostle Paul. The historians have pieced together what Paul looked like, Okay. Anybody know some of the characteristics, physical characteristics of Paul? Anybody? 
very short, okay, so in that day, that, that meant he was like 5'1", okay, so very short, what else? Yes, he, he, had a, he had a kind of a speech impediment, yeah. and, and he didn't speak very well, couldn't speak very clearly. What else? He, he had, he had a, an eye condition that was constantly, like, like uh, there was a discharge from his eye constantly. Can you imagine coming and hearing this guy preach, there's stuff coming out, he can't talk, he's spitting, he's hunched over, he's short. So this is what he looks like, you know. He's preaching like, you know, that's kind of the thing. That's Paul. And here, he's the greatest apostle who ever lived, the greatest church planner in the history of the church. That's the power of Christ. You see that? And that's what he's trying to get at. And he's trying to say to the, and by the way, he planted church, the church in Corinth. And he's trying to tell the, the, the people in Corinth, look, listen, this isn't about you and your nobility and your wealth and your worldly wisdom. This is about Christ and Christ crucified and God's, and God's wisdom. So consider your calling. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Powerful, you weren't of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. You know, gee whiz, God's really lucky he saved me because I'm going to do some great ministry now. That's what he's saying is a problem, okay? Um, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. By the way, I love that sentence because it's one of the few times where Paul uses all those wonderful world, words together like that. You know, this is, this is it's salvation, it's, it's righteousness, it's redemption, it's sanctification, it's all of these things together so as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord let's always boast in who jesus is and then i love one through five when i teach public speaking classes at um, fuller seminary or gcu uh, any of the christian colleges one of the first things i do is i say look i'm going to give you all the all the uh, public speaking um, theories and principles and we're going to study all that stuff and and I want you to do really well about, you know, having an excite step and a launch step and a relate step and your main points and a reiterate step and, a, and an energize. I want you to be really good about all that stuff. But let me tell you something. If you don't understand 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, if you don't understand that the power of what you're preaching is in the cross and it's in Christ and it's not in, in any rhetorical devices that I can teach you, you might as well go do something else. I'm going to teach you this stuff, but you better rely on the cross. So here's what he says. When I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't go to Com 225 and listen to Frank, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He's saying, I'm not a good speaker. That's not where my power comes from. And I tremble at, at, the, at the thought that I get to carry this message of the cross. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom in good rhetorical schemes, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If it rests in the wisdom of men, men are going to let you down. Women are going to let you down. If you put all your faith in a particular person. Some of you have maybe heard the story. There was a couple coming to Arcadia for a while 
um, quite a while, actually. And um, they apparently didn't like our music here because they, they would always time it so that they walked in kind of during the last song before the sermon. And then they would stand in the lobby. They did this over at the other church, and they did it for a little while here. Um, and then they would stand in the lobby, and they would wait to see who got up to preach. And if it wasn't me, they'd leave. And so finally, Josh Prather one day uh, uh, talked to them, and, and they, they walked up to Josh and said, Is Frank here today? I don't see Frank. And he said, No, he's, he's away. Uh, Cody's preaching today. And they said, oh, okay, well, we're going to go because we, we believe that Frank is the only one who can bring the word of God. And, and <laughs> Prather said, well, don't worry, there's still time for you to repent. <laughs> <So> <laughs> that might have been the last time we ever saw them. Anyway, but here's, here's what Josh was trying to get across. Now, all of us have our youthful, um, you know, sass and snark and sometimes it's wonderful you know I mean it makes a point here's what here's what Josh was trying to get across if your faith is in Frank's ability to preach you've got no faith in God you don't even understand what the resurrection is you, you, you're not you, you, you're, you're in trouble and if you don't believe that God can speak through Cody just as much as he can speak through Frank that's a problem okay so that's what, that's what Paul is saying here. Verse 6, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Now, he's kind of setting us up here for something later on. Um, it's in chapter 3 or 4, where uh, I think it's in 4, where Paul says something about, I, I'm still struggling to just even give you guys in Corinth milk. Okay, So he's kind of he's teasing that a little bit here. He's saying, you know, among the mature, where, wherever we find them, apparently not in Corinth, uh, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Again, he's, he's again just pounding away on this idea that, you know, if your thing is Aristotle, remember, he's dead and he's not coming back, okay? Who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You know, Jesus got in trouble for teaching this stuff. And if they had understood God's wisdom rather than being so wrapped up in their own wisdom or supposed wisdom, then Christ would not have been crucified. By the way, a little tiny rabbit here. I mentioned this, I think, on Sunday morning, too. But, um, you know, the whole time that Jesus is going through the arrest, the trial, the sentencing, the cruci all of that stuff, um, the whole time you're thinking, he could stop this whenever he wants, but if he did, we wouldn't be here. We have to remember that. You know, you're sitting there going, he has the power to stop this. He could stop this. Why doesn't he stop this? I wish he would stop this. That would have been a really good Hollywood ending, right? <laughs> but he doesn't. And, and so that's why we get to be here today, because he did go to the cross. Um, uh, Paul's not saying that he shouldn't have been crucified. He's just saying this is why he was crucified. But as it is written, no, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things have, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And then he just goes on this thing about the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So he's saying... You, you, you think that your spirit knows you. Your spirit knows you. How much more does the spirit of God know God and should be able to instruct you? 
That's what he's getting ready to say. Uh, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit of, uh, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, meaning the person who is in sin, the person who is under the condemnation of Adam's original sin, which is all of us, the natural person, apart from God, apart from the filling of the Spirit, apart from the resurrected Christ in them, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, discerned. Again, this is Tom saying, God has given us the decoder, the Holy Spirit, that, that, that he might illuminate God's wisdom and truth and love to us and help us to be able to understand it. Uh, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood, understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So then Paul starts verses, uh, chapter 3. In this same vein, he's still in the same argument about factions, self-reliance, and the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man. And I'm going to read 3, 1 through 9, and that's where we'll start next week. Okay? He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as spiritual of the, uh, spir- uh, people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Here's the milk thing in, ver- in chapter 3. I fed you with milk, not solid food, For you are not ready for it. And even now you're still not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? He's not saying they aren't saved. He's just saying that they're not living by the power of the Holy Spirit. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, And the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he nor plants, nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So Frank, Tyler, Tyler, Trey, even Stephanie, we're nothing. Okay? It's God who is doing this. Okay? If God does not build his church, the the workers labor in vain. I'm, I'm already preaching and teaching, and I said I was going to do this next week. All right. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. That's what we'll start with is, is uh, chapter three next week. Probably get through three and maybe even into a little bit of four next week. All right. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and its truth, and I just pray that we would be filled with your Holy Spirit, as Paul says here, and that we would be spiritually discerned. I pray that we would walk away from the wisdom of this world and we would embrace your wisdom. Help us to discern that. As Solomon writes in the book of Proverbs, you know, there's a wise way to do things and a foolish way to do things. God's way is the wise wise way. Human's way is a foolish way. And you really need to fall down on the, side, on the side of the wise. So we pray that we would be people who would do that. Uh, push away our flesh that gets in the way and help us to be spiritually discerned. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. See you soon.